0: This is a huge topic, and pairing things back is not one of my greatest strengths, but I am working on it, and so I'm going to try and just approach this from just two angles tonight. What does it mean? What does he endured the cross actually mean, and how do we respond? So that's plenty, I think. (laughs) So he endured the cross. Oh my goodness, where to begin? So much, so much meaning packed into four small words. But it's foundational to our faith. And how we understand, I believe that how we understand this event will radically inform our witness and the race that we run. And I think it's actually worth taking a few minutes to talk about our witness. And by that I mean how we explain and communicate this crucial aspect of our faith. What does it mean? Well, we all know what it means, don't we? We talk about it, we sing about it. The language of the death and resurrection of Jesus is everywhere in the liturgy, in our worship, in our outreach. Some of us wear a cross around our necks. And recently, people close to me have been attending an Alpha course, and I've been along to some of the sessions, um, partly to help with lifts and things, but partly because I actually thought it would be really helpful and useful for me to try and put myself in the position of someone who's never heard this before and, and try and put myself in the position of hearing for the first time that talk, Why Did Jesus Die? And I have to say that for, for someone outside of the church listening to that talk for the first time, it is really tough to, to get to grips with. It's tough to understand And when I was a fairly new Christian a long time ago, being taught to lead, how to lead someone to Christ, the pretty standard formula then was ask the person to acknowledge that they're a sinner, accept the fact that Jesus died on the cross for them, ask them to repent of their sins and invite Jesus into their lives. And it's all true. It's all marvellously and wonderfully true, but hugely challenging in its language and imagery to an unchurched generation. And they must sometimes think we're mad when we go on about the blood of the Lamb and the Lamb of God who was slain for us to take away the sins of the world. And we'll be taking communion soon. And we'll be using phrases that allude to eating his body and drinking his blood. And this language is fine if you know your Old Testament and you know the traditions of animal sacrifices for the cleansing of sin. But we live in a time and a culture where ritual animal sacrifice is seen as abhorrent and primitive. So this imagery can be really off-putting, to say the least. So bear with me. (laughs) Why am I going on about this? I think because we may need to find a new way of explaining the extraordinary truth of the cross without compromising that truth so that it is meaningful and relevant to an unchurched generation. And maybe if we look with fresh eyes at the story of the cross, we may discover or rediscover for ourselves something beautiful and amazing. And the whole book of Hebrews helps us to understand the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament and how they relate to one another. And how the New Covenant is better The word better crops up a lot in the book of Hebrews. It says that Jesus is better than the angels, better than the prophets, better than any other intermediary. In the old covenant, the law required that nearly everything was cleansed with blood and that without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness. And the priests had to enter the sanctuary again and again to make sacrifices with the blood of animals. But Jesus entered heaven itself once and for all by his own perfect blood and because of that we are forgiven people we are forgiven people and we're approaching Easter so how can we tell the story of the torture and suffering of Christ in a way that transforms it into what it truly is which is the greatest love story of all time a story not about death but about death being defeated forever A story of transformation and new life. A story of redeeming and sacrificial love and freedom. And a story of restored relationship and a story of hope. And the second thing I'd like to look at is how do we respond? How do we respond to this story? Because the cross demands a response. How do we respond to so great a gift? How do we live our lives and run the race in the light of these great truths? And Mark spoke in his last blog about holding the tension, uh, the need to run the race with perseverance and courage, and yet allowing ourselves time to relax in God's presence. And honestly, life is full of highs and lows, times when we feel full of faith, And hope, and times when we're just clinging on and it's just a slog. Just like the cross, we feel the tension between the suffering and the victory. And it's important to acknowledge this. And Claire spoke so well in her talk about staying in step with the Spirit. About being in that place where it seems like our prayers aren't being answered. But knowing that Jesus is in that place with us. And going back to Alpha just for a moment, one of the questions that comes up more often than any other, I think, is the question about suffering. If God is so loving, why does he allow suffering? Where was Jesus when my friend's daughter died in an accident? Where was Jesus when that truck ran down Lansdowne Lane and killed three people and a young child? Where was Jesus when priests were abusing children? Where was Jesus when I received my diagnosis? Where was Jesus? He was hanging on a cross. He died for us all. He died for every sin, great and small. He died for our sicknesses and our suffering and our weakness and our frailty. But the work is done The price is paid and it's our response that matters. And persevering means making good choices. The book of Hebrews was probably addressed to the Christians in Rome and in particular the Jewish Christians there. And we think that this letter was written during the reign of Emperor Nero and persecution was coming. The Jewish believers had a way to escape from this coming persecution and a way that wasn't open to the Gentile believers. They could avoid trouble by going back to the synagogue. At this time, Christianity was illegal, but Judaism wasn't. And the Jewish Jewish believers may have thought they could justify going back by saying, well, it's the same God, it's the same God. But of course, they would have had to deny that Jesus was the Messiah. And the the book of Hebrews is an exhortation to this group of Christians not to slide back into Judaism and the law, but to press on in their faith, to keep moving, to run the race. And there's also a very tough warning in chapter 6 to those who do fall away, saying, to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. So let's bring this up to date. As believers in this country, our lives aren't endangered, but we are marginalized. And at worst, we can be characterized as narrow-minded and bigoted. We're often the butt of ridicule and indifference. So the persecution is far more subtle, but it's quite insidious, and we need to be discerning and we need to be wary and swimming against the prevailing currents is tiring. And it's all too easy to drop our heads and go with the flow. But Jesus didn't get crucified for being a people pleaser. Do we care more about what the world thinks than what he thinks? Are we looking away from the cross and gazing at the world instead of Jesus? And these are tough questions, and nobody said it would be easy. God's kingdom is coming, but it's not fully here yet. It's breaking through, but it's not fully here. And living in the here and now can be really tough sometimes. But as I said, persevering means making good choices. And the best choice we can make is to do what it says in verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I love that. He's the author of our faith. He started it all. He ran out to find us. He ran out to meet us. And he's the perfecter of our faith. He will bring it to completion if we let him. And I believe that we must. We must let him finish the job and perfect our faith. How do we allow him? By being willing. And this is a, this is tough. It's really tough. But we need to open every part of our lives, every part of our lives to him. And be prepared to really let him in. Which might mean taking a good look at our lives and changing some things. And I think that's a lifetime's work, if if my experience is anything to go by. But when I sing, thank you for the cross, my friend... I want to know that I'm doing everything I possibly can to lay hold of the gifts that Jesus has given me. Not just forgiveness, as if that wasn't enough, but freedom from the consequences of my wrongdoing and also the consequences of the wrongdoing that's been done to me. Mark talked about forgiveness last week and the imperative to forgive others just because we've we've been forgiven too and we have to release forgiveness to others. But it's really important, I think, to remember to forgive ourselves too. I think this is a really big issue. If the king of heaven has gone to the cross in order that I can be forgiven, who am I to hold unforgiveness over myself? The gift has been given, but it has to be received. No one said it would be easy. Standing our ground and sometimes just standing is hard, but we're pilgrims. We're pilgrims and sometimes we are in a valley and sometimes we can see the mountain top. And a scripture I go back to again and again is Philippians 3 verse 10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. And I find this so helpful because it acknowledges that we will know suffering and we shouldn't expect to escape it. And yet, and yet, knowing that in those tough times he is with us, And that ultimately we will know his resurrection life. Because we believe, don't we? That we have eternity. Death has been defeated. Wouldn't it be great if we could live like a people who can lift their eyes above what we see and endure in this life. Knowing that there is so much more to come. Chapter 13 Verse 14 says, for here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. So for now we're running the race marked out for us and we have a great cloud of witnesses cheering us on. Something I loved when I went down to watch the marathon earlier was that people along the side of the road, when they spotted a runner with their name on their t-shirt, they would shout out their name. They would shout out their name. And as they did that, those people, their heads came up and they smiled because at that point it became personal. That was a lovely thing to see. And it's like Jesus is, we've got our sights on him and he's calling us by name. And he's saying, come on. Come on, Liz. Come on, Pam. Come on, Vera. Come on, Joan. I'd love to say it to all of you. Come on. Say it to one another at the end. Come on. Don't give up because he sees you and he knows you by name and he's calling you by name. Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We are not alone in this. Jesus triumphed over death and he's in the heavenly realms interceding for us and we are co-heirs with Christ so we can move in that arena too. We can take our place in the heavenly realms. We must take our place in the heavenly realms so that we can pray with authority and we can intercede for others just as Jesus is constantly interceding for us. So let's keep running. Always thankful for what he's done and never complacent. A week or so ago, I spent a week in Cornwall with my family. We rented a, a beautiful house on top of a cliff looking out to sea. And every day my vision was filled with that view. Every room had huge windows and every room was filled with views of the sea and the sky and the light. It was beautiful. And it was a stormy week. and uh, We stood on the cliff path that week and we watched as Storm Freya whipped in. Every day we had really big weather, rain and sun and gales, and the noise was incredible. The noise just went on and on and on. And at night, even with the windows closed, we could hear the rain lashing against the glass. We could hear the roar of the sea and the wind. And towards the end of our stay, I found I was almost exhausted by the scale of it, by the sheer grandeur of this view, by the sheer grandeur of creation filling my vision. And I started to think about Bath, safe and quiet and ordered. And on the last afternoon, when I was praying about this talk, and really listening to God and listening to the wind, it was as if he said to me, don't look away. Don't drop your gaze. Keep your eyes on me. He spoke so clearly to me. It was amazing. And so it is with the cross It's a place of suffering and grief, but also a place of utter love and triumph. The scale of it is almost incomprehensible, and yet it's intensely personal. Keep going. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Be prepared to share in his suffering, but know that you share in his resurrection power. Don't drop your gaze and don't look away. I'm going to finish just with a quiet moment this is my cliff top moment, this is the middle of Storm Freya, I'm standing out there with my lovely son, you can't hear it sadly because it was roaring as we approach communion now it would be lovely to just just consider some of these things Rob Bell says this about the cross in his book, Love Wins. It's a story of movement from one place to the next, from one realm to another, from death to life, with the cross as the bridge, the way and the hope. Amen.